continuing our series in 1 Peter. So far we've seen that we are to live in light of who we are in this world. This is the message of Peter to us. He tells us this is who we are and we're supposed to live in light of that. We are as Christians elect exiles. And I know I've said that a lot and I'm going to keep on saying it. I love it. I'm I'm going to use that term from now on for us all the time. We are elect exiles. This world is not our home. We are ambassadors here from another place. We are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and a people belonging to God. While we are here in such a manner, because of that is who we are, because we are ambassadors, because we're elect exiles, because that is who we are, we are to live in a certain manner here because of that. We are to submit, as we saw last week, to authorities in place over us, but with freedom, because we know our ultimate authority is in God. Now this passage, Peter is also telling us, exhorting us, he's reminding us again of who we are, and then now he's exhorting us to live in this manner. The most famous text or verse out of this passage that we read is this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared for defense to anyone for the reason that the hope is in you. That's the kind of the crux of our passage this morning as we dive into 1 Peter and as we see how God is calling us to live as elect exiles. Peter makes a huge assumption in this verse. He assumes that you need to be prepared to have a defense ready because people will ask you for the hope that you have in you. That's a big assumption. I mean, he's just assuming that you're going to live. If you do everything else, if you know your identity and you follow what else he's saying, he assumes that you're going to have to live in such a, you're going to have to have a defense ready because people will ask you, why do you have that hope? The word for defense is often translated to apology for us, where we get this kind of term apologetics for the defense of the faith. It's a term most often used in legal cases to give a defense for or to give a reason for your statement. So he assumes that you should be asked about your hope. People will ask you, he assumes, because something stands out to them. Something should be different about you that makes people say, how can you have that hope? See, guys, while he calls us to live as elect exiles, as ambassadors to this earth, to learn and understand the culture that we live in, there still be something uniquely distinctive about us that says that person is not from this country. Does that make sense? I want you to hear that. Whether it's the garb you wear, whether it's some... I love that Eric walks in with that garb here, that Gina wore, this African garb here. That it's the garb you wear that makes you distinctive. Whatever it may be, Peter is saying that there's something about the way you live. That while you know and live in this culture, in this country, something distinctive should exist about you. That makes people say, what is going on there? Who are you? Where are you from? Right? Typically, if it's, if it's based on countries nowadays, it would be your accent maybe. Maybe the foods you eat, maybe certain of the cultural elements that you find, but we find that we're from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, because so those aren't the things that separate us. So what makes us unique? There are two questions I want to ask today. Question number one, do people ask you? Question number one, do people ask you for the reason that you have the hope that you have? And then question number two, are you prepared for when they do? So two questions. Number one, do people ask you? Are people coming up to you and say, you're different? What is it about you? What's going on? Um, 
Tell me where you're from. Do people come up to you and say, why do you have that hope? Tell me about it. Give me the reason for the way you live your life. Tell me about it. That's question number one. Number two, are you ready for that answer? Are you ready for that question that is? Do you have an answer? So why should people ask you? Let's talk about this. Let's go back to the beginning of this text. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, a sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter here is talking to the elect exiles and saying to them, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the believers and he's saying, this is what I'm calling you to do. This is the way I'm asking you to live. This is what you're supposed to look like. This is what you're supposed to live like. But here's the cool thing. He's first saying, this is the way you do it amongst believers first. Right? This is how you live amongst each other. He says unity of mind. Not clones of one another. Not people who look and act exactly the same. But instead, be unified. Jesus himself prayed for this. He prayed for his followers, for his disciples to be unified. In passion, in vision, and affection. Jesus knew that there was something powerful about a diverse group of people coming together in unity that changes the world. Guys, isn't that what we have here at Waypoint? Isn't that something beautiful of people who often shouldn't gather together, people from different races, different countries, different social economic statuses, coming together for a unified singular purpose of advancing the kingdom of God? When we show people unity, one of our plumb lines here at Waypoint is this, that we live in intentionally diverse community only by the gospel and for the gospel. What that literally is saying is that when we live in our diverse community intentionally and well, overlooking our flaws and issues and differences, coming together in unity, guys, let me just tell you that it shows people the gospel, right? Peter is saying to them, be unified. One of the things that we do as elders in the church is we don't vote on topics, on decisions. We don't say, oh, it's three to two, so the two people lose. Uh, every decision that the elders make it's, has to be unanimous, and we don't do it. Completely unified. That way, we can, that way one person can't be like, well, I didn't vote for that. That was Jeff's fault. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Nobody can say that. That was like, well, you know, Peter and Greg were this way, but everybody else is like, uh-uh. So... So they can't be like, I'll just blame them for that bad decision. We're unified in that way. Guys, can I tell you, when the world sees people who are diverse, we're in the middle of a nation that wrestles so much with racial divides, when we show unity, we show that we're from a different place than everybody else around us. Do you hear that? Unity of mind. Then it says Sympathy. A sympathetic person feels the pain and joy of others. We're able to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, because Christ, our high priest, does the same for us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses because he has known weakness himself. We don't have to tell others we know how they feel. We simply sit and feel. Guys, can I tell you, sympathy, this idea of um, compassion and sympathy... It's something that's so essential to building relationships in the church and building relationships in the world. Can I tell you, here's, here's the church. The church kind of has a bum rap. We kind of have this idea of like being, being that we're the ones who kind of tell people what to do, right? And be like, and judging people. That's kind of the reputation the church in the West has, especially the church in the South, in America, right? Gosh, may we be the people who just will sympathize, will feel, 
will understand that we're called to be a royal priesthood. And a royal priesthood stands in the place of their people. A royal priest, that's what they do. They sacrifice in the place of the people. They be cleansed in the place of the people. They speak and pray in place of the people. Guys, we're called a royal priesthood, so we're called to stand for each other, sympathize with each other. Brotherly love. Fairly self-explanatory, but this is what I want us to stick to this, is that it says brotherly love. Guys, we're called to be a family together. And what's that saying about family that you have to love each other because you have no other choice? Right? Or something like that, you have no choice but to love your family because they're family? Can we just understand that about the reality is us here as a church body? As a body of believers, we're called to love one another. We have no choice in the matter. That's what we're supposed to do. My sister may annoy me often. My sister lives in California now, so it's not as easy for her to annoy me, but she still does. And I annoy her often. But she has no choice. She's going to always love me. And I'm going to always love her. Guys, that's the relationship that God calls us to here. As you might not like or you might disagree or that person might be different from you or often there's a commonality when brothers and sisters because you were raised by the same people so you have some sort of commonality. So the, but in this instance, you might have like zero commonality. Like I have nothing in common with that person but you have the most important thing in common and that's the blood of Jesus that washes you. We're called to be family together. It's so amazing when Jesus looked at his disciples and was like, hey, the disciples came up to him and they were like, hey, your family's here, your family's here. And he's like, oh, my family's already here. What a statement he made by that. We're called to live as family together. And the blood that ties family together, well, we have a deeper blood that runs truer, and that's the blood of Jesus. It says a tender heart, compassionate. A compassionate person is kind, tender heart, and willing to forgive. Let me say that again. Willing to forgive and not hold grudges is a mark of a tender heart. Do you hear that? Willing to forgive. Guys, the world keeps a record of wrongs all the time. If we can learn to look at each other, because Kai, when we live in community, when we live as a family together, you're always going to at one point rub each other wrong. When you're willing to live together in community, there's at some point where Dylan's going to really annoy me. He does that often. <laughs> but I'm willing to forgive and then not hold a record of wrongs because we're called a family together. To be tenderhearted. Guys, there is no... Time and place, if you truly live in a community where somebody will never offend you. We've kind of had like a honeymoon, golden, nice period at Waypoint Church. Am I right? Three years of like, ah, you guys are, I love you, I love you. This is awesome, this is nice. Can I tell you, that's going to change at some point. I, I mean, maybe hopefully not drastically, but there are going to be times that you're going to be like, man, that Lawrence guy really annoys me. I can't believe Lawrence did that. Did he really forget this? And I'm, I'm just admitting to you right now, I'm going to do that. Just expect it at some point. I'll try my best not to. But I will, and you're going to do the same to others. What marks us is not that we're perfect people, but because Jesus forgave, we also know how to forgive. You guys hear that? Not we're perfect. I will never be perfect. I will, for my wife, I will never be the type of husband that she wants or deserves. I'll try, but I'll never live up to it. But she's going to forgive me because she's committed to we're going to forgive each other because we commit to do this thing called life together. This thing called advancing the kingdom together. That's the mission God's given us. And when we do it together, it is so much more powerful and it shows the gospel. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Then it says here, have a humble mind. 
humble person does not think too highly of himself, Philippians 2.3, but sees himself as, as he really is and considers others more important than themselves. Guys, humility is just the essential nature of kind of living in community, right? Humility is essential to, in, in this, especially to live a Christ-like life. Not only because Christ was humble, he showed and modeled humility himself, but it's, it's essential because humility is essential to even understand and grasp what Christ has done for you. If you grasp and truly understood how God himself lowered himself, became human, and then took upon all the filth and death and sin of the world upon himself in your place, then there is no choice if you accept that and believe that for you, other than for you to be humble. And understand the reality that you did nothing to deserve it. There's nothing you could have done to ever earn it. But because of grace and love, you can have it. All this is how we're to behave with one another. But I want you to hear this. I love how, how Peter does this. This he says, how do you live as elect exiles? Well, you live like this in community. But he gives it to us first in the church. So that if we live like this in the church, this is kind of like our practice. This is our practice ground. Can we live like this with each other so that we can live like this in the world, that the world can see it, so that they can then come and question, where do you get your hope? How do you do that? Where is this coming from? We can do it in the church where it's a safe place, living, living in this community. It's like the danger room in X-Men. Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> I love pulling out as nerdy a reference as possible just to see who else is fellow nerds with me. But in the X-Men, they have this like danger room where they would like fight against like fake robot enemies so they're training to become better fighters and stuff, right? Where they can train and they can battle and they're learning how to work together as a team, but they can mess up because it's set on like non-lethal mode or something like that. So you can set the mode of it so you can train. Guys, I want you to hear this. This is what the church is too. The church is our danger room. This is our, our, our training ground. This is where we can learn to live in love, live in unity, live in compassion, be tenderhearted, learn to forgive. We can do that in the church first so that not only can we be a model, an example to the world that they can look and see in us, but also that we learn how to do it with others. Do you guys get that? We can do it in a safe place because, guys, can I tell you, living like this is so vulnerable, isn't it? It's a little scary. Because you might say here, well, I'm willing to be brotherly love to somebody, but is that person willing to do it back to me? It's scary. I'm willing to be authentic. I'm willing to be real with my hurts and my fears and my issues. I'm willing to be tenderhearted and sit with you, but will somebody sit with me? These are real questions. These are real fears. These are real things holding us back. But if we said in the church, unified, and says, here, we'll practice it here first where we can mess up, where if we're practicing it here and learning that we can't forgive, learning that we're struggling being open, learning all this stuff, but we're practicing this here where we can now receive forgiveness, we can now be open, it starts changing things, doesn't it? So we practice here. This is our chance to learn and to practice with one another so that the world, now when we can do it with them, we're willing to be vulnerable. We're willing to be tenderhearted. We're willing to do actually the rest of this. It says here, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. How difficult of a verse is that, by the way? Right? 
What a ridiculous challenge that is. You know, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this that you are called. Can I tell you, most of my life and everything inside of me does not want to do that. Just to be completely honest with you, right? When somebody's a jerk to me or somebody's mean to me, all I want to do is be like, I'm going to get you back. I got this. Let me tell you, I'm going to tell this story just because it's funny for me. But I'll say it anyway. <laughs> I went to this coffee shop. And at this coffee, unnamed coffee shop, <laughs> at this unnamed coffee shop, I was treated poorly. Everything inside of my heart wanted to be like, I'm going to yelp this. I'm going to tell everybody about this. I'm going to tell everybody in the world, be like, never go to that evil place establishment again. And then I went there because somebody asked me for a meeting there. And I said, I'm going to go and meet with this person. And this was a convenient location. And so I went back there and I walked in. And I remember there's, there's people who work in this church who work there. <laughs> they were not the mean ones to me. And so they were like, Lawrence is here. This is redemption at its finest. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? This is, because I mean, I, I, I laugh about it. And it's more for me because make, I make a joke about it because Pastor Josh adores this place. He always talks about it. So I talk about how much I hate this place. Huh? You know what place it is. <laughs> yeah. It's the bean traders. But, uh... <laughs> but I say all this to say, honestly, I, I joke about it. And part of this is more of a joke. But for me, in my heart, the second I was wronged by this person, all I wanted to do was pay him back. Isn't it the nature of our hearts? Right? I mean, let's just be completely honest. I, don't, I mean, I, I pray that God is sanctifying me, and I pray that I'm more sanctified tomorrow. I pray that I'm more sanctified five years from now. But right now, in where I'm at in my process of sanctification, all I want to do is pay this guy back. I'm like, I'm going to wreck this place. I want to, I don't know. I, I had bad thoughts. <laughs> I did. I'll be honest with you. How in the world can we do this? How do we repay, not repay evil for evil, revile for revile, but on the contrary, bless? That just seems so radical. That seems impossible. That seems like so foreign to any human condition that we have. That is so foreign to anything that we have inside of us. How in the world, when you've wronged me, can you possibly bless? After the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989... No person in all of East Germany was more despised than the former communist director, Erich Honecker. He'd been stripped of all his offices, but even the Communist Party rejected him, kicked out of his villa, a new government refused him and his wife new housing. The Honeckers were now homeless and destitute. Enter Pastor Yu Homer, director of Christian Help Center north of Berlin. He was made aware of the Honecker's straits, Pastor Homer felt that it would be wrong to give them a room meant for even needier people. So the pastor and his family decided to take the former director into their own house, the former communist director into their own house. Erika Honecker's wife, the Honeckers were the communist directors, Margot had ruled the East German educational system for 26 years. Eight of Pastor Homer's 10 children had been turned down for higher education due to Ms. Honecker's policies, which discriminated against Christians. Now the homers were caring for their personal enemy, the most hated man in Germany. This is so unnatural, so unconventional, so Christ-like. 
By the grace of God, the homers loved their enemies, did them good, and blessed them, and prayed for them. They turned their other cheek, they gave their enemies their not, not only their coat, but more than that, they gave them their home. They did to the Hanukkahs what they would have wished the Hanukkahs would have done to them. How in the world can Christians do this? How in the world is this possible? But if we did it, if we did it, could you see people asking you why? I mean, could you imagine everybody there? Like, you're like, are you taking in the communist director? Are you out of your mind? The one who denied your kids' education, the ones who had corrupt regime over us? You're taking them in? You're feeding them? You're sheltering them? What's wrong with you? That life begs a question. So how do we do this? How in the world can we possibly do this? Let's look at this next verses here in 10 through 12. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter is driving his point home with a quotation here from Psalm 34. This is where that passage of scripture is from. It's from Psalm 34. The context of the psalm in the superscription of the psalm says it refers to a time when David pretended to be insane in the court of Achish. And David escaped with his life and he expresses relief and gratitude to the Lord. Peter's point is that the Lord himself distinguishes those who do good and those who do evil. Hear that again. Peter's point in referencing the psalm is to distinguish that God himself is the one who distinguishes those who do good and those who do evil. This is a quote by D.A. Carson. Just as God delivered David from the dangers among the Philistines, so also God will deliver Peter's Christians' readers from the dangers among their pagan communities. God cherishes righteousness and promises ultimate judgment on the wicked. The privilege of belonging to God's people, redeemed people, brings with it the grateful, grace-driven responsibility to pursue righteousness and holiness, not to presume on God's grace while trying to live no differently from the world. This verse illustrates the relative fates of two kinds of people, those God receives and those he opposes. Guys, I want you to look at this. In Psalm 34, it says these expressions, the eyes, and then the ears, and then the face. And these have Old Testament implications. When his eyes and ears are said to be open to the people, he shows his care for the people, his care for the elect. But when he sets his face against someone, he is demonstrating his anger or his judgment or his righteousness. So when God faces his people with eyes and ears open, it's an affirmation of God's care. For example, 2 Chronicles 7 says, Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered. 2 Chronicles 16, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. But his face is against those who do evil. Psalm 34 clearly is a sign of judgment. It's four times in Leviticus. For example, Leviticus 17.10, and any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn on them, those who eat any blood, I will set my face against that person. Leviticus 20, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Guys, I want you to understand that Peter's quote is to show us that as elect exiles, God sees what it is that we do, even when the world around us doesn't. 
that the good we do, the pain we endure, the suffering that we face, all has meaning and all has purpose. His eyes and ears are open to us. That is our hope. That is how we can take any suffering, abuse, and repay evil with good because we trust that God sees, that God hears. And we can cry out now, verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you suffer, should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. How can the, 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 the pastor Homer and his family take in the Hanukkahs? How can you repay evil with good? Because you trust that there is a higher authority. You believe that there is a higher power because God himself has his eyes and ears open to you. Guys, I want you to understand something. That suffering, just for suffering's sake, is not a good thing. Most of us can attest to that. But suffering for purpose, suffering for the sake of God, suffering for the advancement of the kingdom, that, that you need a reason to endure something. Can I tell you, I've used this illustration before, but for like $100, I wouldn't do much. Or for like 50 bucks. I'm like, if somebody's like, Lawrence, I'll give you $100 if you go clean the, all the porta potties in the baseball stadium. I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it because the reward of $100 is not worth it to me to clean every single porta potty at the baseball stadium. You guys with me so far, right? Something really gross, disgusting suffering, right? Now, for a million dollars, I would do it, right? For a million dollars, I'm cleaning every bit of those porta potties up and be like, okay. And honestly, I'm going to be happy about it. I'm going to be like, woohoo, a million bucks coming my way. I'm cleaning up all the porta potties. You know what I'm saying? Because there's an end. My suffering will have an end, and the reward is so much greater. Do you guys understand that? Can I tell you, in this life, in this world, the way you repay evil with good, the way you live as elect exiles, the way you can live in hope in this community, the way you can serve those who spit at you, who persecute you, the way the Christians at the time could face the suffering and persecution of Emperor Nero, was they had to believe that the pain will end one day and there is something better. Something so much better. And that goes to my question number two. What is your answer? What is the reason for the hope in you? What is the reason for the hope in you? If you look at Paul's defense before Agrippa, King Agrippa, when Paul was facing the book of Acts before Agrippa, he declares, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul is summarizing, I am, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. What Paul said for his defense, his legal defense for the reason he preaches and for what he believes, he says, I believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Edmund Clowney, New Testament scholar, says, the apostolic gospel bears witness to the historical fact of Christ's death and resurrection and proclaims the meaning of that fact from the word of God. The reality of the resurrection and the rationale of the resurrection are joined under the authority of God. The confidence of the apostle of Christ's resurrection was their hope. Because in the resurrection of Christ came their new reality, came their new identity. Guys, can I tell you something? 
There are those who might say that they can follow Jesus' teaching. They can respect Jesus' teaching, but they just can't believe in the resurrection. Can I say to you that you cannot be a Christian, you cannot follow Jesus' teachings without believing in the resurrection? Peter and Paul over and over state their case and hope on the resurrection of Jesus. Without the empty tomb, there is no power, there is no hope. Can I tell you this? Paul even says it himself. He says, if there was no resurrection, then we are to be most pitied. Why? Well, because he says if the resurrection isn't true, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't true, then what should we do with our lives? What should we do? If the resurrection of the body wasn't true, if the kingdom of God wasn't true, eternal life with him wasn't true, eternal joy and fellowship wasn't true, then what should we do with our lives? Paul says, well, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Paul says, if it's not true, if the gospel isn't true, if the message of Jesus in our place isn't true, if our reward isn't true, then what should you do with our lives? Eat, drink, and be merry. What that literally means is just be hedonistic, enjoy life, do whatever you want. Whatever feels good, just do it. Why in the world would you suffer? Why would you pay evil with good? Why would you ever hurt for anybody else? Why would you ever be with anybody and weep with anybody? Instead, you should just be like, well, all I care about is this. I'm just going to be like, okay, do whatever makes me happy right now. Do you understand? But Paul is saying, but because the resurrection is true, that is their hope, the reality that they can stand on, that the resurrection is true, that I can endure any suffering, any injustice done to me, because my God sees me. Because I know who I am in him. I am a beloved child. I always say this to human condition. You guys heard me say it a million times. I'll keep on saying it. Is that we want to be known and we want to be loved and we crave purpose. Right? But in the reality of the gospel, it's in that reality of this being true, can then we say, can we be known and loved fully in God? We need the hope that the gospel brings us. And that is the only way to live in the manner that Christ calls us to live. Is a hope in the resurrection. And in living in such a manner leads us to sacrifice. Leads us to look at life and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because when we believe in the resurrection and believe that any amount of suffering now is pale in comparison to the glories before us. And if our heart desires for others to experience that reality too. I remember this. Um, I went to a conference when I was, I think it was like in the year 2000, I think. It was a Christmas conference in the year 2000, and um, I think it was a campus outreach conference or something like that, and John Piper was the main speaker at it. And John Piper got up there, and he shared a story that he got from uh, J. Oswald Sanders. And um, he gave this incredible illustration of what this life looks like. And he talked about this Indian evangelist from India. He's a brand new believer who wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. He wondered whether he should wait um, kind of, he just was just so excited, he was so excited, so he's like, okay, he just became a Christian, he was so pumped, he just wanted to tell everybody about Jesus, but he was like, okay, but I first got to tell my village, so he took off, and his village was far away from where he was, and he just walked, and he traveled, and just went as fast as he possibly could, he just had to get back, he couldn't wait to tell, so he goes back to his village, and uh, makes a very difficult journey, he gets there, and he starts evangelizing, he starts telling them all about the gospel. Starts sharing all about Jesus and who he is and what men in his life. He got a crowd around him. He preached the gospel to them. And they scoffed at him. They made fun of him. 
So he was tired and he was discouraged. So he walked out of the village and he laid underneath a tree to fall asleep. And he thought, what did I do wrong? I must have shared it wrong because the gospel message was so powerful. It changed my life. I must have did something wrong. So he was frustrated, sitting underneath the tree, frustrated. What did I do wrong, God? And then he finally falls asleep. A few hours later, as the sun was going down, he woke up, startled. The whole village is around him. He saw one of the leaders of the village over him, and and he thought, oh, man, they're going to hurt me. They're going to kill me. And And the leader said, we came out to see you. Maybe make fun of you some more. But when we came out, we noticed your bloody feet. And we decided that you must be a holy man and that you care about your message because you came from so far on feet like this. So we would like to hear your message. I remember John Piper mentioned at the same conference that he was sitting um, at the feet of Richard Wormbrand. Uh, he's the guy who founded Voice of the Martyrs. And he was literally sitting at his feet, a small group of pastors sitting at the feet of Richard Wormbrand. And he actually had his shoes, Richard had his shoes off and his leg, and he literally saw the scars all over Richard's feet. And John Piper mentioned that he just wept just sitting at the feet of Richard. Guys, can I tell you that the way our lives are called to look is to live in such a manner that people have to ask, why? Why would you walk that far? Why would you bloody your feet? Why would you endure their scars? Why do you repay evil with good? Why do you love like that? Why do you, how can you possibly, when suffering comes, how do you have joy? How do you serve like that? How do you give your life like that? How do you make decisions that you make? What is your reasoning? What is your hope? Do you have your answers? Are people asking you? And what is your reason? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that our hope, our answer is in the resurrection. God, it's in the gospel. That you came in the fullness of time, lived a perfect life of love, you fulfilled all the law, but and chose up to take upon yourself the punishment of sin, to die in our place. God, to make the unrighteous righteous. So God, we thank you that you now call us to be your instruments to show others, God, the reason for our hope so that they can taste and see that you are good. God, that your kingdom may advance. May we live sacrificially. In Jesus' name, amen.